everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Honest Defense. Today, I am honored to be joined by Carla Garrick. Carla is a lawyer, an author, an activist. She does it all. She's the author of the book, The Ecstatic Pessimist. It's a collection of essays that Carla's written. It's speeches she's given, opinion pieces. There's some biographical writing in there. It's just a great, it's a really unique collection of, of writing. Carla's an excellent writer. She's got a fascinating life story. Uh, she's, she's done some really incredible stuff. So I'm so excited to have you here, Carl, and to get into all the, all the stuff you've done in your fascinating life. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Eric. And I, I was telling you before we started recording, we met at Freedom Fest. We were introduced by our mutual friend, the hilarious Lou Perez. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we had a, we had a, a pretty lengthy conversation. I walked away from that thinking, wow, she's, she's really interesting. I, I would love to get her on the podcast. And then I got your book. I started reading even more about you, and I realized I, I we only talked about a small fraction of what you've done. So I'm I'm so excited to get into all of this. First thing is I have to ask you about the title of your book, and this usually titles uh, I usually don't don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but you're stuck with me because something resonated. Because when I think about big picture ideas, I, I tend to get pessimistic when I'm thinking big picture and long term, but just on a day-to-day -day basis, there's so, there's so much that I do get excited about, and an ecstatic might be the right word. But I, I was curious where you came up with that title, if that's if that's kind of where that came from, or if I'm just putting my own spin on it. No, and that's a great question. I mean, in some ways, because I think that we manifest our own futures, I, I think that if I could do A-B testing, I would love to make it the ecstatic optimist right. and the ecstatic pessimist and sort of see how that plays out. But the original title comes from a short story. It was an award-winning short story that was published many years ago. Uh, as you mentioned, Lou Perez, Lou and I actually went uh, and did our MFAs together at City College. So that's how I know him. And I actually turned him on to like Ron Paul and all of that. So I'm going to take credit for turning him, as one might say. <laughs> um, so the title was The Ecstatic Pessimist. And it's actually, um, it's a story about an alcoholic who's having problems with his uh, partner and she actually leaves him because he's unwilling to start uh, stop drinking. And in many ways, that's sort of a little bit personal in the sense that that was a journey I took for myself. So I just really liked the words together. But I think that, you know, I've changed over the 10 years since that story was written. And I think maybe I wanted to get it out of my system, you know, to be like, okay, this is done. This is a part of my life. I really wanted to get the collection out and just, you know, I, I'm working on another book. I know there's a book after that. People are like, three memoirs, Carla. I'm like, yes, damn it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so it, in some ways, I wonder if I should have stuck to that. I have some people who are like, you know, do you want to put pessimism out in the world? Because that's obviously very counter to my own like energy. But I think it was it, it was a saying goodbye to a part of me, and and it's a catchy name, and and you know, and people. I I put up one of those polls and it seemed to resonate with a lot of people. So maybe that was why it resonated with you as well. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, we, we, Liberty people and people who sort of live with Liberty values forward, this is obviously a bit of a trying time. I think I would be more pessimistic, honestly, if I wasn't here with the Free State Project in New Hampshire, because I feel like, okay, there are things that, you know, we should be worried about, right. but I feel like I'm working towards solutions and not just focusing on the problems. And I think that's the healthiest view to have, because there are people who just don't want their... 
to be any negativity. They say, why would you even use the word pessimism? We should just be all positivity. And to me, that always comes off as inauthentic. I mean, there's always something you're you're worried about, you're concerned about. And I, so to me, I, I don't I don't feel like I need to hide any kind of pessimism I have or any kind of negative feelings. But like you said, it's as long as you're working towards something, as long as in your kind of day-to-day life, you can see the positives and, and have something beneficial. It's okay to to put out there, hey, I'm not feeling that great about this. That To me, that's just real. Right. And I think also the, the contrast of the words, right, ecstatic and yeah. pessimist or ecstatic and optimist. Ecstatic optimist actually wouldn't work, right? Yeah, you could, right. It, it just, it's already written in right. there. So, so it's that notion of balance. And that's really something, you know, the positive and the negative, uh, the yin and the yang, all of that, right, is something that I think we are losing sight of yeah. <laughs> in general. And whenever I look at things in life, I kind of go, well, how can we, like, Where's the balance in this? And so I like it for that reason as well. Right, right. So let's go to the very beginning. I want to hear about growing up in South Africa. And I want to hear, can you talk to me a little bit about apartheid? Because that, you know, there's now a generation of, of people who are growing up who have no idea what, the, I mean, it, Nelson Mandela was freed, I think, when I was an infant. Uh, and so there's kind of a part of history that's not really taught in schools in America. We don't really know much about it. Can you explain what it was like growing up there? Sure. So apartheid was a, uh, in its literal translation in Afrikaans means uh, kept apart, right? Separate. And the notion was sort of like separate, but equal, but like in a really, really shady way that was not reality. Uh, Basically, the the long and the short of it is uh, Boers who were farmers who were mostly Dutch went to South Africa and the between the 16 and the 1800s, no one was enslaving anyone. People, you know, traded for land. It, it was all pretty kosher. And then those sneaky, sneaky little Englishmen <laughs> were like, hmm, you guys have some stuff we want, like gold and diamonds and all of that. And so uh, they came in. They came in with, you know, colonialism, the the sun will never set on the empire kind of mentality. And there were actually two Boer wars uh, or, you know, wars of independence. So that was the the more British, and that's sort of my background. Uh, My family, you know, we came from Europe, but we weren't British. So there were a couple of wars uh, that happened at the turn of the 18th, 19th century. And something that a lot of Americans don't know, or frankly, anyone in the world knows, is the first place there were ever concentration camps that were used, like, uh, you know, as, as a form in war was actually during the Boer War. And the British put Boer women and children in concentration camps, and they killed 20 Fifty-five percent of uh, of all women and children, which will have an impact, of course, on your society. So that, needless to say, didn't make the Afrikaners super happy, and so they were like, "Meh." So, um, so in, in the sixties, South Africa became independent from from British rule, and then it became this like nationalist state. So we kind of went from British rule that wasn't all that awesome to this weird nationalistic state, and that was where they started to more formally introduce apartheid. But a lot of those policies were actually introduced under the Dutch. I mean, I'm sorry, under the the, the British. And so they just sort of, the, the nationalists just kind of leaned into it. So they were creating homelands 
I liken them almost to, I think, tribal lands in America is a fair assessment, right, where they kind of put them into these pockets of areas. Usually, you know, it's not great arable land. It's kind of like, oh, we're going to put you over there and just pretend that's separate separate but equal, which clearly it wasn't, right? So rightly, the Black people, uh, you know, and there are 11, it's complex, because like there are 11 different tribes, depending on how you count in South Africa under the Blacks, you know, and you have the Kozas and the Zulus, and they hate each other. And so it's a lot, right? It's a lot for one yes. little country. But um, so we had the 60s, and then there was apartheid, and then America and sort of the rest of the world was like, what are you guys doing? Kind of glossing over that they were doing that until like the mid 50s, sure. right? So South Africa in many ways was like 20 years behind America. So I would say like I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and that was probably very similar to people who grew up in the 50s in America. By way of example, South Africa didn't even get television until I think like 76 or 78. So, you know, we we're just kind of behind the curve, so to speak. Um, so the world at large was like, we don't like these policies quite right. So sanctions started. There was definitely, you know, this movement bubbling up globally, you know, free Nelson Mandela, all of that. So I caught a caught the tail end of the demise of, of the apartheid regime was during the time I was in college, you know, working in law school, going, uh, doing legal aid cases in the townships on my own, which looking back, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure how safe that was. But, you know, I felt very strongly and have always felt very strongly about, uh, you know, liberty and human dignity and just letting people be there, you know, themselves. And Nelson Mandela was, of course, uh, tried, and he was in jail for a good 30-plus years. He was kept on Robben Island, which was an island just off of Cape Town. And as the economic pressures of sanctions, international sanctions, was having a really negative impact, of course, on the country, which was the goal, which, of course, we know is what happened in, you know, Iraq. You know, this is sort of a model we've seen repeated over time that doesn't generally end up that well. But um, but because of this giant international pressure, uh, Nelson Mandela was released in 94. Uh, actually, I think he was released in 93, and we had our first free and uh, fair elections in 94. And that was pretty exciting. I actually voted for Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Uh, old school people would be like, you voted for a communist. And I'm like, yeah, okay. It's Mandela. Fine. I think I'll give you a pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And, um, and you know, then for a while, South Africa was sort of on a good path, and now it's kind of a mess again. But, you know, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> what, what was it like on a on a day-to-day -day basis growing up there? Were the, were the schools segregated? Were, were, was there – did you interact with other races? What was, what was it like for you? How, did so, you so feel the, what was going on? Yeah, so the schools were segregated. Um, they also came up with, you know, governments will just come up with the stupidest ideas, right? So one of the weird things they did in South Africa was uh, they, they classified people as white and black. And then we had a term, it was called colored people. That's not a denigrating term at all. And those are mixed race, black, white, mixed race. It's a fairly large segment of the population. And they actually identify with the Afrikaners or with the Boers. They also speak Afrikaans. And so, um, so, so we had in our school, and then for some obscure reason, Chinese people were designated as 
white, if our, no, Japanese people were designated as white and Chinese people were designated as colored or something. So anyway, they had this weird system. So in my school, by way of example, I, I, I went to an all girls school and it was segregated. So it was all white children as well as um, Asian children, uh, girls, I guess. Uh, when I started college, I was one of the first years where we actually had uh, full open enrollment. And so that that was kind of cool. You know, I ran a little underground newspaper on, you know, and would write these plays that got banned everywhere. And, and it was a fun time, you know, I and, and certainly people always ask me, where does this passion for your activism come from? And I'm like, I think it's just the environment I, I was raised in. And then I would say, you know, it was a police state. Um, it didn't seem that bad for white people and obviously wasn't, ha you know, even like one tenth as bad. But, you know, there was population control in terms of having to show your papers to move from, you know, one area to another. Um, most of my interactions, frankly, were with um, with staff or with, you know, uh, your gardener and your homekeeper and that kind of stuff is really the reality of it. Um, but one of the things people always lose sight of, and I think this is a problem in America now too, is, you know, people want to work. And if someone wants to work, we should provide those opportunities. And I think we look at a lot of those relationships through a exploitative lens. But I'll tell you, anyone who's who's struggling or in a country with a high unemployment rate, people are genuinely glad to have a job. You're not exploiting them, you're actually helping them. Um, so that was sort of the base of it. And then we just had crazy, I mean, it was, it was a mess there towards the end. I mean, there were various um, unauthorized border wars that were going on between South Africa and Angola, between South Africa and Southwest Africa. There were all these uh, communist parties that were surrounding America that were being funded, you know, by by the Russians at the time, because that's sort of that simulation, right? And um, and so it was just a very strange country, I guess, to grow up in. And then I actually had the the fortune, my dad was a diplomat, so he worked for the apartheid regime and I'm like, eh, that's not great, daddy. <laughs> um, but you know, we weren't raised racist. We were always very open. Obviously, if you travel a lot, you're just going to be an accepting, I think, person. And so I had I had the blessing of actually living all over the world as well. And that really informed my views because I was like, hmm, <laughs> okay, we could probably be doing some of these things better. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's funny because where I grew up, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. It was 99.9% .9 white, but I just, and maybe it was just the environment my parents raised me in. It, it, race to me just never seemed, I had, I had posters of Michael Jordan and Muhammad yeah. Ali on the wall. I listened to Jay-Z. Like it just, and I never thought of them as, as something different than me. So, right. it, and it, so to me, it's like, it doesn't even take having to travel a lot. It's just, it, somehow it's put in you to think this group of people is different than you. And, and I think it has to be injected into, into someone, whether it's through the parents, through schools, through government. It just I don't think that's the inherent state of people is to is to mistrust someone just because they look different. I, 
I don't think it is either. And I think you're absolutely right. It's it's forces that find, you know, either by dividing us, they can eke out different power structures or there's usually a reason. And, and I have a really good concrete example. I just got back from Honduras where we hung out with some of our South African friends and they have twin boys and they... Uh, have never, like never, like race is just, it's never been an issue. And then they started school in California, a, uh, you know, at this year. And the kids came home from school one day and they were like, mom, dad, we're the oppressors. We, you know, we're white. We're, you know, and I was like, man, that's not right. Yeah. That's just not right. Because we're humankind, right? And, and I like both those words. <laughs> you know, we're human and we are all the same in that sense. And we should be kind to each other. I don't know why all this, well, I know why, the division is being stoked in order for people to, you know, again, gain power or, you know, live out their little evil fantasies. Right. <laughs> so was there a point that your parents were like, okay, they're, you know, they're starting to see some of these wars that are bubbling up. Were, were they thinking while you were growing up, hey, we should get out of here? Or was that was that your idea when you got older that, that you wanted to leave? Um, I, I mean, because I traveled a lot, I think I did know, uh, you know, if an opportunity presented itself, I would like to go other places. Uh, interestingly, like after 94, uh, there was a brain drain, right? So there were white people and, and actually a lot of colored people too, and black people who were economically could do it, where a lot of people were like, we think you know, based on what happened in Zimbabwe and other things, people were just like, we're going to leave the country. That was really never a conversation in our household. My sister is an occupational therapist and she got recruited. The schools in South Africa are amazing. They're really, really good. And so people get a good education there and you can go from high school. Like I went from high school to law school and then it's a four or a five year degree, but there's none of this like undergrad thing. If you're a doctor, you, when you leave high school, you have a pretty good classical liberal education. And so she got recruited to come to America and, um, and they came out to visit and then they wrote me in for a green card lottery. And that's actually how I came here. So it wasn't that it was like this purposeful idea of I must escape. Uh, but I did know, I, I think I've always felt like I needed a bigger platform. <laughs> Sure, 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 sure. And uh, and and so when I got that opportunity to immigrate, I was like, yes, I think the the universe is telling me, do it, girl. <laughs> so, so it wasn't even like, would you have immigrated? Let's say your sister was in Germany or or England, would you have just gone wherever she was, or was there something about the United States that you wanted to go to? I mean, I think that uh, depending on how bad things got in South Africa, I do know people go various different places. And a lot of people did go to England because of the English connection. Right. But I think for me, you know, America was just really this beacon uh, growing up. There was this real sense of, oh, this is a cool place. You know, this is when capitalism wasn't quite as frowned upon sure. as today. Um, you know, this is pre-communist America, let's put it that way. And so I did kind of know. Hey, you're the one who voted for the communists. So. I know, it's all my fault. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there was something about America that just always appealed to me in the sense, you know, because it is sort of the pop culture that you grow up with globally, right? Like everyone, I've traveled a lot, you know, and I've sit in like little 
coffee shops in Laos, you know, and they're still showing American sitcoms, you know, Friends is on TV or whatever. So there is that sort of sense of it. So I did think America would be the best place, and 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 rightfully it has been. Uh, now, of course, I think maybe New Hampshire. I'm not sure the rest of America is savable, but um, but yeah, I, I I guess I I wanted to come here. I think I would have left anyway, uh, and hopefully we can keep America free enough or New Hampshire free enough where I don't have to immigrate again you know because immigration also is something i you know people don't really talk about this but it's funny to me that people will say oh america has this systemic racism and i'm like does it because the number one country of people who want to immigrate here are nigerians and other than nigerians who are princes who just want you to send them seven thousand dollars before they give you a million bucks they are very entrepreneurial and nigeria is doing insanely well in terms of africa and so i always say you know when people are like oh america so racist i'm like why do all these black people from other countries want to come here because it's awesome. <laughs> right. And I, I have to say, those princes never pay up. So maybe they never do. <laughs> eight times a charm, but I haven't gotten it yet. Uh, this, this is, this is a, a very ignorant question, but I, I generally, when I hear people from South Africa talk, they have they have a type of a British accent. You, mm -hmm. I don't hear any accent from you. Did you did you lose that? Did you never have it? No, so it, it is interesting and never ever make this joke in Guatemala because okay. the CIA made a real mess there and I was in Guatemala and someone was like, why don't you have a, a, a typical South African accent like this or, you know, the fancy uh, British girls high accent. And I was like, oh, that's because I'm CIA. And the guy just looked at me and he was like horrified. And I was like, okay, don't ever make that joke again. But it's actually because my dad was in the foreign service. They were in the States from 73 to 78. And that was, you know, my formative year. So I actually learned to speak English here. Oh, interesting. And, um, and, did have a bit of a British accent, which we know because when I went back, my grandfather, my mom was like, why are the kids peeing so much? Like, what's up every time we go to grandpa's house? And then she followed him. And it was we were standing on the stoop on the porch at the back. And he would go one more time. And, and we'd have to go grandpa, grandpa, please, can I have a glass of water? Because he just <laughs> loved our accent. Yeah. And then I lost it. And then literally, when I moved back here, you know, within three months, it just I think it's those neural pathways, right? right? And it just came back. Now, my husband does have a much thicker accent. When I used to drink, it would come out late at night. Sure. And there's still a few words. But yeah, for the most part, it's just... Uh, I, I knew there was a story to it. Because anytime someone doesn't have the accent you expect, there's always some kind of story to it. it, it it's funny. Like I, You mentioned friends. I've met a lot of people, especially from, from India, Pakistan, yeah. who that they, you know, they come to America when they're young. And and I hear them talk when they're older, and they have like just a they speak English beautifully with no mm. accent. And, and I say, how did you how did you pick up speaking English like this? They say, well, I used to watch Friends. Yes. I, so especially people my age and a little older, yep. everyone learned English by watching Friends. So they all sound like you know the girls all sound like Rachel, and, and the guys sound like Joey or Chandler or Ross. And it's it, it, it's there's always a, a funny story. So when you came to America, what was your plan? How old were you? And then what was your plan career wise? Um. So I was probably. 
I think I was 24, so I was still fairly young. And, you know, I'm unusual in the sense that I actually finished high school when I was 16 and I finished law school before I was 21. And in fact, in South Africa, you had to be 21 to be licensed as an attorney. And there was this TikTok time thing happening because when they activate your green card, you have like a year to move. You have to come once to America to activate it and then go back, plan your move, and then you have a year to come back. And so all these things were sort of happening in that same window of time. And um, and so I finished high school early and, and law school early. And we knew that we needed to come someplace where, uh, you know, so first of all, you look at the map of America and you're like, where do we go? You know, so, I mean, initially we literally put it on a wall and threw darts. And <laughs> the dart landed on Eureka, California. And okay. then I was like, where is this? You know, and this pre-internet, so now you got to go to the library, yeah. you know, the whole thing. So we're like, okay, Eureka's not for us, but let's look at the rest of California. And when we had taken that initial trip, we came out and we kind of went to New York. We went to Silicon Valley. We looked at uh, the Baltimore area, I think maybe DC, you know, so we, we looked around and California just made the best sense for us. I wouldn't have to retake the bar, uh, I wouldn't have to go back to law school. I could just take the bar exam. And my husband's a techie and, you know, Silicon Valley was the oyster. So we ended up in, 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 uh, in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco. Of course, everyone has a good immigrant story. So, so mine is, you know, two suitcases, no money. You don't, literally, you don't know anyone, right? Like I knew right. my sister and she was in Jersey. And other than that, it was like, so we had $7,000, I think, and like two suitcases. So we're staying in a motel in Chinatown, San Francisco, and we're trying to find a place to stay. But, you know, if you've got $7,000 and no jobs, you don't want to pay $1,000 or $2,000 a month in rent, right? right? So we find this apartment, and I'm like, well, it's in this neighborhood called the Tenderloin. And we're like, oh, it's just next to the Hyatt, you know. So the Tenderloin, for your viewers who are familiar, it's literally just maybe six blocks by six blocks, but it's the ghetto in the middle of San Francisco. It's actually, it has gentrified because Twitter actually opened an office there. But at this time, we are talking, there was a crack house in our basement. Oh, the day after we moved in, I was like, is that a bullet hole? <laughs> And then we were like, after two weeks, I was like, God, what is that smell? It was disgusting. And I'd gone to the library to use the internet and I came back and there were like police officers all in the alley and I was dressed quite nice. And they said, oh, are you the caretaker? And I was like, no, I just live in this dump. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the and I was like, but why? And the police officer goes, oh, cause we got a dead guy and like 27 or whatever. And I was like, okay, first of all, at least now I know what the smell <laughs> is. <laughs> but say, you know, and I'm a very curious person. So <laughs> I can't lie. I was like, hmm. What happened? What is a dead? Yeah, well, no, I didn't even, oh, okay. I was like, what does a dead person look like? And I was like, oh, <laughs> do I want to? I and, and I actually said to the officer, I said, well, how dead is he? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, 
maggot dead. And I was like, no, I'm out. I'm out. Right. Uh, so it was pretty gnarly those first yeah. three months, you know, our bathroom, our bathtub was in the kitchen. I mean, it was like the real immigrant experience. Right. So we used those three months. Um, I got a job initially, I think it was, uh, my first job was working for Wilson Sonsini, which is a big law firm. And, uh, and I was just doing discovery. Like I was in a big warehouse with boxes and my job was to look for this one name. I don't remember what the name was, but I remember I was like, Oh my God, I'm getting $25 an hour to just sit here and like read. Like that was a fortune for me. <laughs> and, and Louie got a great job. And then we, you know, incrementally moved from the tenderloin to like a very vanilla literally beige everything was beige townhouse and you know uh down in, in san, uh, san jose and then los gatos and then back to the city for the dot-com boom and bust so you know that's sort of the the, the story i guess in a nutshell <laughs> i have to say you are the literal opposite of a pessimist. If you can make discovery seem like an exciting job, because I, I did, I had to do some discovery work kind of when I was in between jobs. I basically did what you did, except it was e-discoveries on the computer. And you're just going through email after email after email, looking for a specific term or phrase, or you yep. just have to categorize the emails, one thing or the other. And yeah, it was basically that, a machine, right? <laughs> all day long. And and you're yeah, like you're on an hourly wage, you're you're not getting benefits. And so you you kind of just brush right past that. It made it seem great. I just had to bring that point up because it was the worst job I've ever had. So <laughs> it's just it's incredible you were able to, to look at it that way. Yeah, and honestly, you know, I knew that there were steps that had to be taken. Actually, I finished that job and then very fortunately got a job at Apple Computer. And, you know, that was while I was taking the bar exam. Uh, I had to do bar review classes, obviously coming from an entirely different or similar, but not the same legal system because I did petition the court and make a very compelling argument that it was the same enough that they should just let me in. Um, and, you know, so at Apple, I actually worked on, on the acquisition of Next when Steve Jobs oh, yeah. came back to Apple. So I was lucky because I got the job there during the time that no one wanted to work there. Apple was kind of unpopular and it was like, oh, it, it was a has-been company. But then Steve came back and I just happened to, you know, get caught up in that thing. So I ended up, you know, working for really big Fortune 500 law firm, uh, not law firms, companies, Logitech, kind of regret leaving Logitech to go to the tech startup that was going to make me a millionaire that did not pan out. But, you know, live and learn. <laughs> That's really the Silicon Valley story. You know, yeah. everyone thinks the story is becoming a billionaire. This For 99% of people, it's I'm going to this company that's going to make me a billionaire. And, uh, it's and not it doesn't pan out. Yeah. Logitech or Apple. Right. I, I want to rewind a little bit because you mentioned, you know, the green card lottery. And that's it's a phrase I've heard. Everyone's heard. I don't really understand exactly how it works. Was it basically like you said, your family put your name in to live in America and they ended up giving you a call saying, hey, you won and now you can come to America. Is that really as straightforward as it, as it went? I mean, that's kind of it. So the way it works is uh, the program itself is called the Diversity Lottery, Visa Lottery, and they give out 25,000 per year. And I think the program may have stopped. I haven't checked in a while. But the thinking was that for any country that had a historically low immigration rate to America, so specifically, don't hold this against me. They were excluding the Irish. <laughs> they were like, no more Irish. America's closed to the Irish. Um, 
but they would, you know, typically try and find countries. And, and they called it a diversity lottery, which in some ways seems like nonsense, because I was like, really? Does America need one more white lawyer? Right. But whatever, I was super grateful, right? Um, so you fill out, it's you type up one page and it has your name, you declare that you've finished high school, and then it has your address, I think, because it was literally, I got a thing in the mail. And if I recall correctly, I think in the year I applied, it was like they got 30 million applicants and they, they pull what they said is they just pull out like 25,000. Wow. Now I do think there were designations like South Africa got 2000 out of the 25,000 or whatever that is, like whatever magic sauce, the sausage making they're doing there at the INS, right? But be that as it may, I know someone somewhere is super regretting letting me in. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we haven't gotten to why yet. So I do, I wanna bridge that gap between, uh, so I know you, know, you worked at, at Apple, you're working for these big companies, working at Wilson Sonsini, a big Silicon Valley tech firm. So you're kind of on that route. I know eventually you became an activist and you're running the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Bridge that gap for me. How did you how did you get from point A to point B? That is an excellent question. So in 2000, right, was more or less when the dot-com bubble exploded. So our experience was very much like, oh, we came with two suitcases and, you know, or $7,000 in, in the tenderloin and then worked our way up. But part of that working up thing was a very maladjusted economy. The Silicon Valley was getting all this sort of Every, every 10 years, I guess, they create a bubble and it goes somewhere. So that time, it was the Silicon Valley bubble. So it was the tech bubble. It was the internet bubble. And to give you a sense of how, how big it was, right, Louis started a startup, my husband, and they closed like $7 million in first-round funding, just like that. You know, they were on the front of the business, business week, you know, uh, tech magazines, like the whole thing, right? So all this money was just pouring in. And then, you know, and we were like, we're getting massages at our desks. We're like making money hand over fist. I mean, with the parties, the excesses, we'll just leave it <laughs> sure. at that, you know. Um, you know, it was a good time, I, I can't lie. Um, but then the dot-com bubble burst and the company I had jumped to from Logitech was called Scient Corporation. And they uh, they were an e-commerce consulting firm. And so I left this fairly uh, affluent, really good company, Logitech, you know, they, they're, they're still around, they still make good products, all of that, uh, because I thought, oh, I'm gonna, you know, make these millions. And so I actually ended up going in and I had to lay off like 1,200 people, including myself, right? So you're just sort of in this situation where you're like, whoa, what just happened? Right. And so I started researching stuff and, and that sort of led me to Austrian economics and, oh, where, where do these bubbles come from? What is monetary policy? I know it's not like sexy, but it's interesting to me. And I was like, oh, that's what happened, right? So we were in this bubble and then the bubble burst. And in that process, I found the Free State Project. And one of the things we decided when 
you know, so Louis' company folded. I had to lay myself off. Uh, we took our savings. We put our stuff in storage. And we actually went backpacking for like three years. We just went to Southeast Asia. We went back to Africa. We were in India. You know, we were just like, hey, can we live on 15 bucks a day? Yes, we can. Let's do it, right? Yeah. And so... Um, in that process, we were sort of looking, where would we land when we come back? And I knew for myself, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I like the skills I've developed through it. I didn't like the hours I was working. And honestly, I felt a little bit like I was just a... Uh, like a Ottoman for the state. Like people would ask me, what do you do? And I was like, I kind of feel like I just moved piles of paper around for the government, like, you know? And and so I had this epiphany at, at uh, Annapurna's base camp. Now, some people say you were oxygen deprived and I'm like, <laughs> it's possible, it's but you know. Home, yeah. yeah, and I was just like, okay, I want to do something else. And I was like, you know how they ask you when you're little, people are like, what do you want to be when you grow up? We should do a better job of listening actively to that answer because people ask me that and I was like, I want to be a writer and a fashionista. Those were my two yeah. criteria. And I'm like, I'm almost 50 and I'm like, I still want to be a writer <laughs> and a fashionista, right? I, I can't tell you how much that speaks to me because I, you know, when I was a kid, I loved, I loved talking. I got in trouble for talking all the time. And, and so they kind of like, they, all the adults always thought, well, being a lawyer makes sense because lawyers have to talk a lot. And, and I, I was like, all right, I kind of went with that because I didn't know what else to do. And and I, I've kind of just in the last couple of years, when I after I turned 30, I was like, I don't like being a lawyer. Like, what is it that I actually like doing? And, and it's this sort of thing is what I love. And I'm like, I wish I'd done this 10 years ago. But but you're right. right. It's like it, it takes you have to kind of get back in touch with who you were as a kid to find where you belong. Right. And I think we, we do a disservice to society where we create this notion that we should, you know, this professionalism. It's actually a, a little bit of a form of statism, I think, right? It's like how you get people caught up in this system, right? Instead of saying, oh, we're unique and we're interesting and everyone should do what, you know, yeah. what they love. Why shouldn't, at least aspirationally, why wouldn't we try and create a society where it's like, oh, well, maybe you can, maybe you can do what you love. Right. And the fortunate thing is technology is changing so fast. Now, it's probably going to enslave us too. The AI is like, I'm like, but anyway, um, but you know, the technology exists now. And I think what we're seeing is the decentralization of messaging so that someone like you can have your podcast or I can have mine, right? And maybe you don't have, you know, 40 million followers, but you have followers and people are like, I like you, I like your style, you know, and that is dangerous to the establishment because they want to be able to say, here are the four people you're allowed to listen to and hear the right. four people whose opinions you know you should do and so this decentralization is actually i mean it's it's huge and it's great for people who are pro-liberty so we we learned about the free state project we went back to new york i actually went back to school uh so i went to city college where i met lou i did my mfa 
got all the uh, short stories to put in this. And then we started coming to New Hampshire during that time to just kind of check it out. You know, it's more rural. I was kind of like right. a city girl. What's this yeah. going to be like, you know? Um, and it was an adjustment. I can't lie. I mean, I make fantastic Thai food now because <laughs> I had to learn, you know? Yeah. Um but, but yeah, we knew we wanted to come. And so we came, we started to meet the community and I'm very solution driven. Like I don't want to, it's not even that I'm solution driven. My time is very precious to me. I think the most important thing people can realize is your time is your life. So when you're looking at your calendar, it's like, how are you spending your time? Because that's literally your life. That's right. your living, right? And so I wanted to make sure that my time really mattered. And when we came to New Hampshire, it was just, it was a really good fit. They asked me to uh, to to do Pork Fest one year as a volunteer. I did that. It was very successful. They were like, oh, this girl's got some skills. Let's, uh, let's rope her in. And then, you know, kind of went from there. No, so let's let's define what we're throwing a lot of terms. Free State Project Pork Fest. Most yeah. of my audience is non-libertarian, so okay. all the libertarians listening probably know exactly what we're talking about. But no, most, not even all of them yeah. do. So yeah. So so yeah. So let's let's. Can you explain what the Free State Project sure. is? So the Free State Project is a movement of libertarians and liberty lovers. So people who really like value liberty and individualism and property rights and that kind of stuff. And so about 20 years ago, this guy called Jason Sorens, he was a Yale student at the time, and he wrote this paper uh, saying, you know, Libertarians are never going to win anywhere because we're too dispersed. Uh, it's not, you know, everyone's flavor of life. Uh, what would happen if we all concentrated in one place? And so, you know, in 2003, they took a vote. There were 10 different states you could pick from, and New Hampshire won. And so people said, okay, we're kind of creating this libertarian mecca or this one destination that people who are liberty forward, who really do care about this as a, as a a leading living principle, right? Um, we should all start to concentrate together so that we can, uh, you know, have a smaller, more limited government. We could have more economic prosperity, uh, dynamic sort of entrepreneurial environment. So the Free State Project was born. And so we've been around now, I think it's like 18 years, 19 years. And people have been moving for all of that time, we're seeing a massive growth now, of course, because, I mean, it's sad to say, but it's like totalitarianism is good for business, you know? <laughs> right. And um, and so it's, it's uh, the Free State Project is a libertarian movement to attract people to the state of New Hampshire. Why New Hampshire? Low taxes, no personal income tax, really large legislative body. So the House is like 400 people. Oh, wow. And in a state where we only have about 1.2 million people, you like you represent 3000 people. Like when I go out, I run into my reps. I was at a qualified immunity conference the other day and there were 50, 60 people. And I was like more, I think like 10 were not sitting legislators. So just the access of being like, there's the ACLU, there's this organization, here are all these reps, you know? So it's very accessible. And then the quality of living here is just phenomenal. And New Hampshire is incredibly beautiful and it has a little bit of everything. So it has cities, it has rural areas. We have a short coastline. We're gonna have to annex Maine one day, but shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> 
for a nice long coastline. Right. But um, but it's just a great place. And it's honestly, it always wins either first or second place for the freest state in, uh, in America. And then also for the best quality of living. There's a huge homeschooling community. The schools are still pretty good here, although that seems to be going in a, in, in a not the best direction currently but it's just uh it's it, it feels like the switzerland of america and it's just like kind of best kept secret which i'm constantly torn about like should we make more noise or should we just sneak under the radar right well yeah, it's funny because you, you see people in in texas and florida that are getting all these people coming in from from california and other states and they're they're saying stay out we're, we're yeah. happy with what we have but yep. but yeah you're, you're there there's that that tension it's like well we want more people to be into what we're into so but it's it's hard to kind of figure out what that balance is. Yeah, I mean, we're laughing right now because there's actually a project that a bunch of free staters started that's, I think it's called the Progressive State Movement or something, where we're encouraging people who live in New Hampshire who kind of aren't pro-liberty, who are more interested in socialism. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with socialism except the economic basis right. of it. Like, we all like people. We all want no one to suffer. It's not like libertarians are monsters who are like, ah, ha, 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 all right? Like, you're like, no, I want, right? You're like, no, I want a great world. And based on my knowledge, and based on a deep understanding of economics, which apparently no one has anymore, it's like, of all the ways to do it, this is the best way that will raise the most people out of poverty in the fastest way. And what people forget as well is that poverty is the natural state of being. Anyone who is not poor, for whatever reason, because your daddy was rich or because you thought of some great widget or whatever, the natural state of humanity is poverty. So the fact that we are rising out of poverty fast and you know everyone's doom and gloom and like everything's bad, but honestly, the world's the best it's ever been, you know, barring COVID, but. <laughs> you always have to throw that in, yeah. Yeah. Was your husband, yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine who I, I've known for a long time and, and he was kind of a, kind of a fuck up when, when I knew him when he was younger. He's got married a couple of years ago and, and they're expecting their first kid now. And he was, we, we were having this kind of conversation about how, you know, he was telling me how when you're married and you have that person who you knows with you and you, you have your lives intertwined. He's like, you, he's like, I both feel this responsibility that I, I need to take myself and my life seriously for her. But I also feel this sense of comfort that I know she's here to back me up. And, and it kind of changed his perspective on, on how he views himself and his own confidence and what he wants out of life and what he thinks he can get out of life. And so it was, it was really interesting hearing him talk about how having that partner and, and what that strength has given him. And I think that's something that we, we really kind of underplay in, in mm. modern society is having that, that person with you to go through life. Your husband seems like he must have been, he must just be so game to go with you. I, you, you met in, in South Africa, right? He's, yeah. He's, and so to come with you to America, to Silicon Valley, and then to go backpacking with you for three years, and then to say, hey, yeah, let's go to New Hampshire. I, what kind of person and personality is he? And, and, and did you have to do any convincing of him to, to make any of these steps? So uh, he's amazing. Uh, we've been married 27 years now. So, wow. you know, um, and people ask that question. Uh, he He's more of an introvert. He's obviously, he's a tech nerd. So that's sort of, you know, we know that flavor of guy. Uh, he's an incredible shot. 
pew pew. Yeah. Uh, people always mention that. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. I didn't know that was your thing, honey. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's also very adventurous. I mean, the initial decision to leave, uh, you know, I, I think maybe initially I just shocked him where I was like, babe, I love you, but like, I'm going to America. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to come, let's do it. And then I think... By, you know, I was young at the time. I, I, we were 20, 21, 22. He's a little older, so he was like 27. But we always said to each other, it's an adventure. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I think by setting that sort of expectation for our relationship to just kind of say, this is our adventure together and giving ourselves that breathing room, it just always worked. And I think it's because I took the pressure off my crazy brain to say that it has to be perfect, right? It was just like, okay, look, this is an adventure. If and it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And then it worked because we, you know, we just, we get each other and he has a really great sense of adventure. He's very smart. Like, I think I'm smart, but he's like, wait, well, okay, we're going to edit that part out. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> have to hear that. that. <laughs> I was going to say he's way smarter. Don't let him ever watch this. <laughs> um, and uh, he's a big reader, too. You know, we're kind of nerds, to be honest. We just, you know, um, and so he actually helped me move towards, like, a healthier lifestyle. Like, I was definitely, um, you know, partying a little too hard, definitely drinking too much. My diet wasn't good. I had a very adverse reaction to a vaccine, actually, at City College this is a bit of a segue, but when, when we were leaving New York to come to New Hampshire, I had finished my degree and I went to the, and I had avoided getting a, a second or a third MMR vax, but it was required to go to city college, but I just avoided it for like three years. And then I was like, whew, I'm done. And then when I went to get it, they looked at the computer and they're like, no, this says you never showed us proof of MMR vaccination. And I was like, yeah, but like, we're done. No one got measles, mumps or rubella while I was in school. I didn't give it to anyone. We're good, right? And they were like, nope, we have a box to check. You have to get it. And Causation is not correlation. Correlation is not causation. I get it. But I will tell you this. I never had allergies in my life. I had never had any kind of autoimmune responses to anything. I started getting arthritis. I gained like 50 pounds. I was... Uh, allergic to basically the entire like i mean new hampshire's just trees like right. you know <laughs> so i was allergic to new hampshire and so i had to really reclaim my health um and louis was really instrumental in that and just sort of leading by example he was like look i'm gonna start eating this way you do what you you know if you want your hamburgers and your pizza that's on you but i'm gonna eat mostly you know uh, medium protein high good fats and low carb and then i started to see his success and I was like yeah maybe I should give this a shot and and I did and you know I'm really glad I did because health is time and health man that's what we got right like we're this unit and you're gonna go through this lifespan and you may as well make it as awesome and as fruitful and as exciting and as healthy as possible because if you have your health nothing feels impossible yeah and if you need an example of, of government screwing something up, like you look at the food pyramid. I mean, they were telling us, even as recently as when I was in school, you need right. 11 servings of grains, of, you know, eat your white bread. 
And so many people have kind of on their own had to figure out, oh, no, actually, if I'm better in protein and I'm better in fat, which right. get, they told us fat was the most evil Bad. thing in the world. And, and now everyone's learning, oh, I feel so much better if I'm eating high fat, high healthy fat, high protein right. and minimizing carbs. And yeah, it's and it's, it's shocking. I mean, I, you know, because of this last year, it's that that tension where people are like, listen to the scientists, listen to the experts. And you're like, why would right. anyone listen to these right. people? They're wrong about everything, right. including the food pyramid. And sadly, this virus has pretty much targeted type 2 diabetes people who are eating the wrong thing. You can reverse type 2 diabetes if you get people eating the right food. There are many documentaries and books and things out there now. And then, of course, it's it, it has hit the obese incredibly hard, right? And so you're like, well, they kind of created these people through the food pyramid. And now, you know, now there's this... Uh, I won't go into my weird theories about where it came from, but let, you know, so, so, but there is this we, disease. We've said, we said enough that YouTube's got, got plenty of reasons to pull this episode. So yeah, uh, we don't have to get into every single one. No, no, I got no. my first episode pulled. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still waiting on it. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Okay, I will say thank all you. I the words. appreciate your help. <laughs> so. So I want to I want to ask. So you you weren't just any regular member of the Free State Project. You you were in leadership roles. I forget your exact titles. I know you. I think you were the organizer of Porkfest, like you said, for a couple of years. And I forget. I don't know if you were executive director. I forget the, your, your title. But can you explain kind of how you worked your way up to the kind of the the hierarchy of of the Free State Project and and what that was like? Yeah, sure. So you know, there's a famous saying: "No good deed goes unpunished." So I did a good job with Porkfest the first year, and then um, and I'm sorry, I, we I, I don't think we defined Porkfest. Right? No yeah, pork you're fest. right. So yeah. the Porcupine Freedom Festival, which will have its 19th version wow. next year, it'll be so June cool. 20th through the 26th at Rogers Campground, and tickets are on sale now at Porkfest. P O R C fest.com forward slash tickets, I think, but uh, pork fest because of the porcupine. So the porcupine is our mascot. Why is it our mascot? Because porcupines are peaceful creatures, but you don't want to mess with them, right? They will only defensively use their quills, but they will use them if you come at them, right? And so I feel like that pretty much uh, sort of represents our, our ethos, right? Like we're, you know, we're all people who, who believe leave us alone, and if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone and fine, right? Uh, so I did Porkfest a couple of times, and then I became the uh, president, actually, of the Free State Project, and I, uh, I, it was basically the ED. We changed the titles now, and I did that for five years. So my piece de resistance was, um, I'm a like fan girl of Edward Snowden. Like I have a lot of admiration for people who, um, who do brave things for the better of society and who suffer consequences, right? Like I'm pretty sure Ed does not want to be sitting in Russia. You know what I mean? Um, so when when all that whistleblowing stuff was happening, I, I I've always at our conferences, whether it's Liberty Forum, which is our you know winter conference, or Pork Fest, which is the summer one, I've always tried to give a platform to people who who are doing those brave things, right? And um, and so in 2016, when we triggered the move, which is just basically, we had said there 20,000 people need to pledge that they're all going to move together, and if we do that, then uh, then 
the time starts to move and then people would have five years to move. So we've moved beyond that whole model. No one's counting anything anymore. It's a real movement. Like we don't need that, right? And so in 2016 on uh, what is now known as Porcupine Day, when we got our 20,000th, which is the hardest word to say, um, signer, uh, we had Liberty Forum, and actually Edward Snowden uh, messaged in from Russia. It was the first uh, conference that he had done, I think, since he had left. I remember I did the press release, and we sent it out, and it was picked up by like 140 newspapers in America. It was like front-page news. Like, Edward Snowden is going to do this little conference with these crazy people in New Hampshire. And it was, uh, and it was a huge success. And, um, and that's, you know, more or less when I stepped down and then I really needed to take some time. I think one of the things that happened for me personally was I got thrust into a very public role that I wasn't really equipped to process yet. And I will tell you a couple of things. Libertarians are not nice people sometimes, right? But the enemies of libertarians are way, way worse. And so I didn't really, I hadn't developed the skills to just kind of be like, you know, and this was like right when social media was becoming. So I was just getting like, you know, hammered and I didn't have the skills or maybe even the confidence or whatever that thing is to, to deal with it. So one of the ways I was coping is I was just drinking a lot. <laughs> and so after, you know, I mean, it's shocking to me if you look at the videos from, from when we announced it, you know, I'm, I'm 50, 60 pounds heavier. I, you know, it's just, it's not good. It's hard to look at, but you know, that's a reality. And then you look at something and you go, do I like this? Do I want this? Or should I maybe make some changes? Right. Which is, how life gets better for folks. And so um, I do like to always say this because, you know, you don't want to be too told you so. But had people bought Bitcoin on Porcupine Day in 2016, if you had bought $100 worth of Bitcoin back then, you would have had $8,000 at the last pork fest. And so I like to say that because, you know, people aren't sure who to listen to or like who's right or, you know, people call us names. And so people are like, oh, should we Maybe I, you know, maybe those people are, you know, uh, but then I'm like, no, like all I'm trying to do is actually improve your life. Right. So th there are a group of people who are saying you can be a self-actualized human being. You need to like set and meet goals. You need to like figure your crap out. Um, and then there's this other body of people who everyone's listening to who are like, you're useless. You're a victim. You can't do anything. You suck. You can't like make, you know, and I'm like, why would you want to listen to those people who are literally telling you you're worthless yeah. instead of going, you are super, super, super unique and important. And let me help you or let society or let, you know, all the gurus out there and like all the self-help books, like find out what that kernel is yeah. and go find it and be your best you. Yeah. And th yeah, that's why, you know, I never mock, you know, you'll see people mock like Anthony Robbins or any of these self-help people. And I think, why would you ever mock someone if, if that person's helping someone improve yeah. their lives? I don't care how they're doing it. If, if someone's making their life better, great. That person's a hero for helping that other person. And right. And I would much rather, 
yeah, people should, um, again, you know, I know it sounds like a shtick, but I'm like, we only got one life as far as I know, you know, and if that's the case, let's, let's make it count. And let's, you know, I don't want people to suffer. And if we're going to move into this sort of model of a medical tyranny and, you know, where we're going to start hurting people or putting them in different groups. I mean, I heard today that a hospital in Colorado took anyone who was unvaccinated off their organ recipient list. And, you know, and I'm just like, look, this is this is not good. No, and it, it, you're, you're right. And especially after this, you know, this year and a half that we've had, like there's it feels like humanity is being sucked from us. You know, it's it, you, you, for a while you couldn't even go outside and hug your neighbor. I mean, it, and and that's yeah. There's I just saw this clip post the other day. I'm a UFC fan. There was a UFC fight a couple of weeks ago between Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler, two kind of UFC veterans, and and you know they it was a, a tough fight. I mean, they were both bleeding at the end, and you see them come up and hug each other, and and you can hear the audio of, of Robbie Lawler talking to Nick Diaz, and he's like he's like, are you good, man? Are you good? And and Nick Diaz goes, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. And, and Robbie Waller goes, no, are you good in life? And Nick Aww. Diaz, Nick Diaz goes, oh, that's you know, he goes, that's another fucking story, man. And you, <laughs> they're having like it's like this intimate conversation, but you can hear the cameras just right. barely picking up the audio. And and Robbie Waller goes, hey, I want to help you, man. Let me know how I can help you. And you, just, it was just this intimate, mm. touching moment that like that I've been talking about this clip for for a week now since I first saw because for some about it touched me to my core, and it might just be because. It feels like there's so many fewer moments of that type of humanity in, in our day-to-day -day lives that when you see it, it's something special. Yeah, and I think we can all do with a little more compassion and love. I was just at a uh, health freedom rally on Saturday, and they called me before the time, and they're like, Carla, can you bring the ray of sunshine? And I was like, <laughs> damn it, now I'm going to have to rewrite that yep. screw everyone speech, <laughs> yeah. right? But I was like, okay, I can. And the way I sort of framed it for people there is we have to realize – um, from a neurological perspective, right, things have been happening. And this 24-7 nonstop propaganda has actually engaged people's amygdala, which is where your, fa your fear, where the fear factor sits, right, um, in a way that can change your neural programming. So an example I use is in the Second World War with the, the air raid sirens, right? So people would know an airplane's going to come and they're going to drop bombs on London. So they would set off the sirens and people would go into bunkers, right? Your adrenaline would spike, your cortisol would go, but it would pass. And then you would come up. And not that I'm saying that that was like a peachy world to you know be hanging out in, but it would pass. But what we did for the past 18 months with you know legacy news and propaganda and that kind of stuff is they set off that air raid, air raid siren and they never turned it off. So they took these people and it was like, and they put this frequency into them that I think has, you know, I'm not a, a medical expert, this is just a lot of reading, but like they, I think they're making people a little crazy and it's not on accident and scared people are controllable people, they are obedient people and they don't question things. And so I think, you know, regardless of, you know, where you fall on the spectrum of what exactly is happening, we do know it wasn't nearly as bad as people said it was going to be, and that all these strange things have happened that have more to do with population control and uh, 
you know, monitoring people and watching our movement and to bring it full circle back to apartheid South Africa, right? The papers, please, where the police on the street literally would tell black people, show me your papers. And if you didn't have the right paper to be there, you would get arrested and be thrown in some jail where sometimes you'd be in jail for like three years. I had a client once who was 15 when he got arrested for a murder that he did not do. I became his lawyer when his dad came to me when he was 18 and the kid had never even had one day in court to get out or get in. So what happens when the Leviathan, when the, the beast becomes this big thing, right? Like we all just get caught up in it. And I wanna tell people, let's not get caught up in it. Let's you know, bring the rays of sunshine back. Let's realize that a lot of these people are just, they're, they're hurt, they're scared. They don't really know what's going on. And to tell them they're dumb and stupid and, and like all of that is not gonna help. We actually have to fix it through through love yeah. through saying to people compassion empathy i hear where you're coming from what about this and just really like open it up everyone is spreading hate and i think some of us really just have to start to spread some love yeah and that's what people are attracted to and that's i, I think you're right and i think sometimes people feel like well I, I can't fight if i'm not angry i have to be angry to be able to, to fight the good fight and and no, that's not true. There, there. You can be the happy warrior. I mean, that's what I loved about Ron Paul. I mean, Ron Paul's really kind of how I first got into oh, all of this, and and nice. it, it was just this kind of this folksy country doctor, and he's he's saying these tough things, and he's going after Rudy Giuliani, and he's going after the 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 military industrial complex, and but it, but he's just he's doing it in a way you're like I, this is like my grandpa. Like he's he's he just seems like a sweet guy saying these really tough things, and I I think that's the way you you attract people to what you're doing. No matter what you're doing, it doesn't have to be politics or activism. I think it's, it's anything in life. Yeah, I fully agree. And, you know, Ron Paul is a, a, a gateway drug for a lot of yeah. people. Uh, I know with Lou and I went to a, oh, God, it was somewhere in Texas. And it was uh, the guy who wrote The Lonesome Dove. He just passed away, Larry McMurtry. <laughs> and it was a retreat that he paid. And this was in 2007, late 2007. It was the one year I missed Porkfest. And we were there. And I remember it was like 14 of us. And we were handpicked. And, you know, and I was I was Ron Paul all the way in. You know, everyone else is like City College, you know, sure, like sure. Bernie level. Right. I mean, he wasn't running it. He may have been running actually anyway and and Lou will always say to me I just remember like they were all sitting on one side of the room and I was on my own and he was like you just wouldn't give up you'd just yeah. be like no and I was like well you know I got you and I have another friend who's who's kind of she's come over a little bit too so you never know yeah. you just have to be open to talking to people, bring a good, healthy energy. You know, I, I can get angry and I do get angry sometimes, but I've learned over time, you know, we can, we can accomplish more if we're likable and if we can communicate clearly and, um, and just again, show those people some compassion because assuming, uh, you know, that there are going to be some medical issues and some autoimmune diseases and just some troubling things that are going to come out of this, um, you know, to, to, I, they've put us in a really difficult spot for me because I'm like, I, you want to do that. I told you so thing, but you're like, you're talking to people who can't reverse decisions that they may have made. And so we have to really navigate that as well. I think in a sensitive way and, and allow people to be like, everyone gets to make their own choice, but maybe someone 
you know, made a, a, what turns out to be not the best choice for them for their health or whatever. But the more people we can get thinking about how do I make my body healthier, even like me, where I had an adverse reaction, but now I've actually managed to bring all my autoimmune issues under control. And that's through making the right choices. Yeah. So, you know, love, compassion, make the right choices and get enough sleep. Yeah, that's, yeah, sleep's my big one. Oh, yeah. And, and I, you know, you brought up Bitcoin. This is talking about making smart decisions. So the first time I heard about Bitcoin, every libertarian has this story too. The first time they heard about Bitcoin, because I heard about it my first, uh, first time I was even around a group of libertarians. It's like my, I was doing a college internship in, in 2011. And so this is very, very early on in Bitcoin. And I hear these guys sitting around talking about this thing called Bitcoin. It's this online currency. And I'm just thinking, I'm thinking this is Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing. I'm thinking they're yep. playing some sort of video game. And, and I laughed it off. But yeah, back then, if you had put $10 into Bitcoin, it'd be $10 million at this point, something crazy like that. So smart decisions is, is absolutely the key. Yeah. But, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, I wasn't going to say, I, I was going to change the subject. No, go ahead. No, you changed the subject. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, basically, I just wanted to ask you, just wrap it up here. What's the current state of the Free State Project? What are you guys working on now? What's What are your future plans? Yeah, so the Free State Project's doing like gangbusters. It's crazy. I, I manage one of the pages. It's the FSP job alert. So where we really try and help match people with jobs and that kind of stuff. And I let 52 people in yesterday. That was just like one day. Um, we have our winter events coming up in March, and that's Liberty Forum. And people can find information at nhlibertyforum.com, uh, I believe. It may be dark. We obviously have Pork Fest coming up next year. That'll be in June. Um, I'm going to go down to Florida to do Tom Woods' 2000th episode, go hang out with that crew a little bit. But really what we're trying to do is to encourage movers to uh, use the fsp.org forward slash visit and fill out a form and really just come, right? We have a monthly calendar, which is fsp.org forward slash calendar. And people are just genuinely shocked when they open open it up and they're like, wow, there are literally hundreds of events a month, right? We have three community centers with a fourth one coming in. Uh, that's places where we meet up. People do things from play Dungeons and Dragons to have like a homeschooling craft class, uh, really just the gamut of whatever people are interested in. And because we're very uh, human action directed, everyone's doing like little projects. So, you know, some person will be like, oh, you know, we have a poker group and we have a hiking group and all of that, right? So we're just a very large community that has many different interests, and we just want people to come visit. Come when it's convenient for you. Right now, it's beautiful foliage season, so you know anyone who feels inspired after this to just hop in the car, come on out. Um, and then we just, you know, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for donors. Um, I would love to see anyone who's doing conferences that have anything to do with freedom, liberty, Bitcoin, crypto, uh, health, all of that. New Hampshire's number one industry is tourism. We have beautiful resorts here. Plan your events here. Why don't we just all leverage that energy, right? We could do a crypto conference at Bretton Woods. Oh, that'd be funny. Oh, that would be so <laughs> I pitched funny. that to Hereticon. Oh. oh, that's funny. I'd love that idea. Well, that's great. Well, Carla Garrick, I could talk to you all day. This this has been excellent. The, the book is The Ecstatic Pessimist. You can get it everywhere. I will link to this in the show notes. I will link to the Free State Project in the show notes. Uh, Carla, this, this is awesome. Thanks so much. Thank for you. What a pleasure. I appreciate right. your time.